This is the Political Monitor Podcast, brought to you by the Concord Monitor. In today's show, we talk Biden drafting, Hillary apologizing, Lawrence Lessig announcing, and PolitiFact judging. And that's just the start. My name's Clay Wirestone. I'm a columnist and editor here at The Monitor, and I'm glad to welcome our politics editor, John Van Fleet. Hi, Clay. Hey, how's it going? Good. And one of our political reporters, Casey McDermott. Good to be back. Good to have you here, Casey. So it has been a busy political week. A lot of uh, stories bubbling up and around. We'll start, Casey. You did a story just recently here about um, kind of the New Hampshire organizing efforts for draft Biden. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes. So they have been kind of on the ground and reaching out. through phone calls and other conversations, uh, a handful of representatives from that organization, which is essentially like a super PAC that's been set up to build momentum for a Biden candidacy, um, much like the Ready for Warren, Ready for Hillary efforts that we saw um, earlier. Um, they were here last week um, kind of finalizing these these plans, but they announced yesterday um, that Representative Dan Eaton and um, Mike, and I, I apologize, I might butcher his name, Kuzi, um, C-U-Z-Z-I, um, were selected to kind of help with their efforts in New Hampshire and New England Nash- or generally. So um, Eaton, who had been, you know, really a, a loyal Biden supporter for months, has been sitting on the sidelines, kind of waiting to see whether the vice president is going to jump into the race and has been you know, encouraging some other Democrats in New Hampshire who haven't committed yet to a candidate to hold off on the chance that the vice president gets into the race. Um, He is going to be the state director of draft Biden efforts in New Hampshire. And um, Kuzi, who was the deputy state director for Obama for America in New Hampshire during past election, um, will serve as an informal New England strategist. So this just kind of you know, gets us one step closer, perhaps, to some kind of an infrastructure um, for a, you know, Biden oh, campaign. Potential Biden yeah, campaign yeah. if he decides to go into it. Um, so, John, we were talking a couple of weeks ago. We were taking a, making a bit of a wager on the likelihood of Biden coming into uh, the race. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you were you were feeling at the time that it's that it seemed likely couple of weeks on, how do you feel about Biden and the race? Uh, well, it seems that the, the prevailing winds, more people are, are it seems, joining my side and, and agreeing with me, my prophetic statement that he will, in fact, join the race. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as, as I said then, it still remains to be seen, but the, it, it's becoming more and more likely. I mean, any particular reasons why you say that or... I mean, certainly the certainly the Hillary Clinton uh, kind of email uh, situation hasn't let up. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that's actually another another one of the the items from the last week is that um, Hillary Clinton for this last week is that Hillary Clinton formally kind of apologized in an interview for her use of that private email server. Right, 
and uh, you know some people are questioning why why apologize now why did it take so long to say something so simple um so when last we were recording uh joe biden was delivering a speech or about to deliver a speech um at a community college down in florida and um, i was listening to the uh public radio report from that and they were talking to some some of the students at the community college about what they thought and there was an 18 year old kid who was interviewed and I I thought it was it really stuck with me when they said so what do you think of Joe Biden and they said I think he's great and they said well, what do you think about Hillary Clinton and he said she just got a real negative vibe around her <laughs> and I was like you know I guess that kind of sums up the uh, the attitude of of 18 year olds and how they look at this sort of stuff but also i mean there is a lot of negative baggage there and so it, that's the the struggle for hillary clinton to get a to get away from some of that stuff to, mm -hmm. to to prove that those things can't weigh her down which then speaks to her electability which then speaks to whether joe biden's mm -hmm. gonna gonna jump in yeah, I think um, in many ways the email story has kind of dominated the conversation around Hillary Clinton's campaign since she announced and before she announced in a way that the campaign was not prepared for. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you see that in kind of the evolution of their response to that story where, you know, at first there was little response at all. It was kind of, you know, dismissed and, you know, talked about in kind of bits and pieces, but not really, you know, they hadn't really engaged on it. And then, you know, it is interesting to note that in interviews, um, this is according to the Associated Press, in interviews just last Friday with NBC and then another one on Monday with the Associated Press, um, Clinton didn't apologize or declined to apologize and had kind of, you know, acknowledged that it was a poor choice, but still, you know, maintained that nothing was wrong and nothing had been wrong about the way that she handled it. So, you know, while it was a, a subtle shift in language, I think that the ABC News interview that came just a few days later was really a big shift in the way that she was um, owning up to the situation. And reading some of the national reporting on this with people who are kind of, you know, more plugged into the thinking at the top of the campaign, um, there was a New York Times story that was talking about how the Clinton campaign is going to start, you know, presenting her in a more um, kind of humanizing light and really warm and approachable, warm and approachable <laughs> spontaneous, I mm -hmm. believe, was one of the words um, that they used. And um, they, they had noted that actually a New Hampshire focus group was, you know, had contributed to the decision to kind of take a more forceful um, approach in responding to the email situation. I haven't been able to confirm that separately with the people on the ground here yet. Um, but I did think that that was interesting that, you know, this is informed by them trying to respond to what they are, you know, the feedback that they're hearing from people who are saying like, hey, you know, you're not handling this the best way. So. Well, I also think what's interesting from what I've read about Hillary Clinton over this last week, and again, it might it was some sort of national reporting, mm -hmm. talking about how her campaign is going to supporters and really pointing out that they have a very long-term kind of strategy mm -hmm. for the primary, mm -hmm. and it does 
definitely does not depend upon Iowa and New mm-hmm. Hampshire. Mm-hmm. A, maybe a little bit of a subtle suggestion mm-hmm. that they are willing to write off New Hampshire mm-hmm. if it looks like you know Bernie Sanders is going to perform mm-hmm. especially well here. They mm-hmm. say look to the South, you know, look to the the Midwest, mm-hmm. these kind of somewhat more conservative states. Mm-hmm. Hillary has much more broad-based support there. Mm-hmm. You know, she's going to walk away with those states, basically. Yeah, I think just today, actually, she's in Ohio. Um, so that's, you know, another indication that she's really playing the long game here. I think that, you know, by my recollection, I wasn't, I don't think I was even old enough to vote for this election. But um, oh, from what I've read, that. in 2008, <laughs> she... Um, you know, held on for a while after, you know, through the primary season. So I would not be surprised if they do that again, you know, despite some initial stumbling. And I mean, we're, we're way far out from that now. Right. But, you know, I don't think that a loss in Iowa or New Hampshire would at all mean the end of her campaign. I think just the whole notion of like apologies this campaign season has been really interesting, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's been so so dominated by the fact that, you know, on the Republican side, Donald Trump has refused to apologize for anything. Mm-hmm. And that approach has actually seemed to work out really well mm-hmm. for him. Um, so, you know, in a way, and I, and I think it's probably Hillary Clinton's default mm-hmm. position as a kind of a longtime politician mm-hmm. who feels like things like the email story mm-hmm. are very overblown, mm-hmm. that they're DC inside baseball that no one else cares about. I think certainly her and her campaign's initial instinct is to just say, no, there's mm-hmm. nothing to apologize mm-hmm. for. This is just a distraction. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yet, I think, you know, what you say, Casey, is, is right. It, it gets to the point where the story drowns out everything yeah. else. Yeah. And they, um, they can't have, they probably don't want it to do that. That notion of apologies is interesting. I do think that you can kind of separate out the types of things that Donald Trump is apologizing <laughs> for and the types of things that Hillary Clinton is apologizing for, whereas... You know, this concerns something that she did as an elected official that to many people represent a bre- represents, you know, a breach or something that would, you know, erode her level of public trust. Um, in Donald Trump case, it's mostly that he says highly inflammatory, highly offensive things about other people, but not necessarily things. I mean, he doesn't have a public record to run on, so he doesn't have these kinds of things that you can really point to. I mean, you know, you can dig down into his business record, um, but As right now, done, yeah, yeah. But right now, a lot of the things that people are calling on him to apologize for is just when he puts his foot in his mouth. Um, now, on the other hand, though, it's interesting because I, I did, and we've talked about this, spend some time with Martin O'Malley um, a few weeks ago, and I was asking him, you know, in what way do you think you've really grown during this campaign, or what is an experience that really you know, you learned a lot from, and, you know, of course he said, you know, you're always growing, you're always learning, but he had some pushback for saying all lives matter in the context of a conversation on race. And that is a phrase that, you know, when you're talking about race is often, um, you know, can be problematic to people who view that as a dismissal of Black Lives Matter and that movement. And, you know, that was not his intent there, but he said that that was an instance where he really, you know, took care to apologize and rethink his language and has made an effort to do outreach. So even just contrasting, like, I think that's a more direct comparison of the type Mm -hmm. of apology that you might see from Donald Trump, but that he's (laughs) just refusing to give. Right. Well, and, and I also think that one more notion on one more point on Hillary Clinton and apologies, it was, I guess, widely accepted that her refusal in 2008 
to apologize for her vote in favor of the Iraq war ultimately was something that seriously hurt her against um, then-Senator Barack Obama in the primary there. Um, Which, to add just a little bit, I think can get to the disconnect between major campaigns sometimes and regular Americans. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think it's a real simple thing when people say, well, she should have used a government server, not a private server. It's a real element, elementary thing. You know, people have this opinion. And so it's one thing to spin it. It's one thing to say, well, it's an attack. It's it's all of that. But general, generally, people, they just want, you know, a simple acknowledgement. And so that can make a big difference, you know, the, the disconnect between um, what voters are thinking and what campaigns are trying to strategize about. Mm -hmm. um, you know, someone else um, who seemed to believe that Joe Biden was going to enter the race, uh, John, we heard from yesterday, and that was a former Rhode Island governor and Senator Lincoln Chafee who came into the monitor for an editorial board meeting. Yes. He seemed to believe that Biden was going to run. And uh, we heard from uh, former governor and Senator Chafee for about an hour. We did. And what was what was your take on, on Mr. Chafee? Before I get to that question. Yes, Clay, before we get to Chafee. Um, I did want to say, you know, before I answer what I thought about our meeting with Chafee, I, I would like to bring the readers or the listeners here into the meeting that we had before the Lincoln Chafee edit board, where we were discussing which questions to ask him and in what sequence, what was the appropriate first question. And so there was discussion of whether we were going to come right out of the gate and ask him. Your campaign has literally become a joke when Monmouth University could not find a single person to support you in their recent poll. It became a punchline for Conan O'Brien. So we were going to ask that question in, in a perhaps more softly worded way. But uh, was that the appropriate first question or do we ask that sometime in the middle? So. As you know, Clay, because you were sitting there, that was not the first question. Right. And, uh, but we did ask it, and uh, he, he took it all in stride. My takeaway from, from Lincoln Chafee is he is the anti-Donald Trump. Whereas Trump will say many outlandish and inflammatory things, Lincoln Chafee is the exact opposite. He is very measured. He is very calm. He is very unexcitable. He thinks about his answers carefully and delivers them carefully. Um, we asked him. Uh, we asked him a couple of questions about Trump too. You know, is there mm -hmm. anything that Trump says that you agree with? And he, he said no. He said no. Although actually, he then he then reconsidered and said some of Trump's. Uh, thoughts about taxation on uh, hedge fund managers and stuff like that mm -hmm. he, he might have agreed with. Um, yeah, well, to, to also, though, John, give a little bit more background to what you're saying about that, that pre, the pre-meeting meeting, that's it's pretty common whenever we have a, a candidate or someone like that come in to the monitor. We do, the folks who are going to be at the meeting, do get together and try to figure out kind of a, sorry, the, the uh, fluorescent light in here just started flickering. And then it stopped. Um, so, you know, we, we try to get together and um, and kind of just figure out, generally speaking, what we're going to ask so everyone doesn't ask the same question over and over again. Mm -hmm. Like 10 people asking Lincoln Chafee about the metric system, for instance. 
<laughs> but which he which he then clarified was merely one part of a longer speech about the importance of internationalism in uh, in in the United States and how we should we should try to reach out more to other countries and how it would be good for our economy to do these other things in cooperation with other countries. And one way in which we could do that would be to adopt the metric system. So, I don't know. Feelings about the metric system, Casey, John? Uh, no, no. Not, not, nothing. I, I'm not very good with conversions, so I would be anti-metric. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's interesting to have, uh, you know, so far this year the mo- at the Monitor in terms of presidential candidates on on and editorial board meetings, we've had John Kasich, we've had Bernie Sanders, um, we've had Chafee. What's interesting about both Kasich and Sanders is they both came here before their um, campaigns kind of of took off. Um, but and you could say the same of Lincoln Chafee. Well, that's. We we can't pre- still young. we can't predict the future, can we? Um, but you know, it's it's you can definitely be said that for someone like you know Bernie Sanders when he came came in, you know he was a very forceful presence, mm-hmm. you know, and and in and in my experience, candidates approach editorial board meetings in a couple of ways. They they either see them as a, as a campaign event. And so in which they continue to kind of have their persona that when they'd be on the stump on the trail. Mm-hmm. You know, someone like Bernie Sanders was really kind of like that. You know, mm-hmm. he's he's going to give you the same kind of answer that he would give a, a voter at a town hall mm-hmm. meeting. And then there are politicians who are much lower key mm-hmm. when they come in for the editorial mm-hmm. board mm-hmm. And, and try to give a little more extensive kind of in-depth answers. Um, you know, Lincoln Chafee was... Um, exceptionally low-key, uh, I, I think we could say. I mean, very reserved. It was very conversational. Yeah. You know, it was um, a back and, much more of a back and forth as opposed to the true question and answer. It was, he, it really felt like a conversation. Yeah. What was the question that got him talking about Trump? I, I mean, I, I think, I think the question was, you know, is there anything that Trump says or any proposals that Trump has that you could agree with? Mm. Um, yeah, but... But you know what's what's interesting is that when I think back to 2008, um, one of the candidates who similarly had an, in, a very low uh, energy kind of presentation was actually Barack Obama mm-hmm. when when he came came to the monitor. And at the time, that was you know I think people saw Barack Obama as uh, as being like this kind of fiery orator mm-hmm. or someone mm-hmm. who stirred all these crowds. Mm-hmm. You know, I think in the eight years since then, or six mm-hmm. and a half years since then, we've we've seen that he can mm-hmm. actually be a much more measured mellow. and and mellow kind of personality, and that was really the the kind of person he. Mm-hmm. I will he say that I, I mean I've only seen Lincoln Chafee a handful of times, kind of outside of these walls, and I was not at the edit board that he was at here. But he's very low key there too, so I don't know that you're necessarily getting a really big contrast with him. And you know, I saw him speak to a group of Democrats in Concord in May, I think, and it was definitely, you know, that was very conversational, um, and it was a small meeting, but it was, it was not necessarily as, you know, uh, fiery as right. one might get from a Bernie Sanders or some of the, or Martin O'Malley or some of the other candidates. Your Zen candidate, mm-hmm. 
for the day. Like well, you know, he's got an interesting record. He's got a he's got a very interesting political resume, and you know, here's someone who has gone from the Republican Party and switched to the Democratic Party, and and he feels strongly about that. And there's definitive reasons he feel mm-hmm. he felt like you know the the war in Iraq was an ex, uh, overextension of the United States and this. This uh, might is right philosophy that the uh, that the Republican Party was espousing, he, he didn't agree with it, mm-hmm. he didn't go along with it. So he's got a lot of interesting things mm-hmm. to say. He just doesn't deliver them in the fire and brimstone <laughs> way that some other people do. Right, right. I think, too, you know, a lot of his uh, kind of brand or, you know, what he was fashioning himself to be at the beginning, and it seems like to some extent this has continued as just a foil to Hillary Clinton. So when I talked to him in May... Um, you know, he made a point and he's done this in his stump speeches that I've seen him deliver in New Hampshire and elsewhere since of pointing out his unblemished ethical record, which is a, you know, not so subtle dig. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah. Um, at those headlines that we were talking about earlier surrounding Hillary Clinton. And he also, you know, really talks up, you know, makes sure to remind people repeatedly that he voted against the war in Iraq. Which, you know, when you're contrasting with Hillary Clinton, who was a Democrat who voted for it, I think that he could have entered this race thinking, okay, here are, you know, these things that I have to offer, but has since been, you know, perhaps drowned out by some of those other candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, well, certainly Bernie Sanders took off in a way that mm-hmm. I think very few people, mm-hmm. including including the monitor, even with our editorial board with Sanders, would have mm-hmm. would have predicted. Mm-hmm. Um Kind of talking about off-the-path candidates, uh, too, this last week, uh, a day or two ago, uh, Harvard professor Lawrence Lessig uh, declared that he's going to run for president. Uh, he's running on an unusual platform that includes basically a promise to resign once his uh, mm-hmm. signature issue is, is passed into law, that mm-hmm. is, uh, attempting to reform campaign finance uh, rules. Mm-hmm. Um, he set himself a deadline. Uh, I mean, a, a set himself a deadline and a goal of raising a million dollars before he uh-huh. would would jump into the race. And I guess he raised his million dollars. He did. Um, but then he also has another goal now, right? The, I mean, another another thing he's working toward. Yeah. So there's a a polling threshold, I believe, that the candidates need to meet in order to be part of the Democratic debates. Um, so. According to reporting by Nick Reed, my colleague, um, uh, and our point man on all things Lessig. Yeah, um, Nick uh, hiked with the New Hampshire Rebellion, which is a campaign finance reform group that uh, Lessig is active with. um, From what was it, Dixville Notch to to Concord, Concord, Mm -hmm. um, and chronicled his his journey and has been, you know, maintaining, uh, you know, doing reporting on them since then. but anyway, so Lessig is going to need to get 1% in two more national polls before, I think, before the October 13th Democratic debate in Nevada. So, yeah. so he's, he's, he's working it now mm-hmm. to, try, to try to get up in those polls. Um, let's see. In terms of other uh, news, uh, news of note this last week, we also had the... Uh, the surprise declaration by Chris Sununu, that the exec- executive counselor Chris Sununu, that he's planning to run for governor uh, for the Republican nomination for governor here in New Hampshire. Um, 
people were not expect. I mean, people had kind of expected that he might be one of the Republicans interested in running. The actual announcement was kind of a, unexpected. Right. That, the surprise wasn't that he announced he's running for governor. The surprise is that he did it on Labor Day without telling anybody. <laughs> and all of a sudden it was like, hey, scramble, what's happening? There was not a lot of advance warning to really anybody on the ground, uh, any journalistic uh, groups in, in New Hampshire. So we, we all had to chase that one really quickly on Labor Day, but that's good. You know, it's good to chase news. Well, it's a little it's a little risky, though, too, if you're that candidate, because um, there's no guarantee that uh, all, all the news outlets are going to necessarily be fully staffed mm-hmm. on Labor Day mm-hmm. either. <laughs> well, I think you can afford to do that when your last name is Sununu, mm-hmm. and you have the name recognition that that brings with it, which he certainly does. Um, but I do think, you know, it's interesting, and as noted by um, Ali Morris in a story earlier this week, this really has been kind of a sleepy non-existent governor's race up until this point and everything is kind of on hold while governor Hassan decides what she's going to do um and that you know is still very much tied up in the ongoing budget stalemate in new hampshire um so you know this adds some urgency spark pizzazz urgency to the race um and, you know, part of me wonders if this was in some way an attempt to kind of force Hassan's hand in one way or another or just get things to pick up. I did think it was interesting that uh, Hassan, I think the day after Sununu announced his candidacy, sent out a political fundraising email based off of that announcement and saying, you know, this is going to be bad. And that didn't necessarily signal anything about her plans, but... Um, you know, she's still kind of using it as a a political announcement of her own. And then the New Hampshire Republican Party responded with their own fundraising email that was pegged to Hassan's fundraising email. So I have not seen a Hassan fundraising email that was pegged to the fundraising email about her fundraising email, but I will keep my eyes peeled. And who says money has a role in politics? (laughs) But also, I uh, to note that one of the first uh, one of the one of the people that was quick to react to Sununu's uh, announcement was was Colin Van Ostern, a fellow executive counselor, Democrat, someone who uh, many have speculated will run for the governor's seat, run against Sununu. Assuming they get through their primaries, but uh, if Hassan goes and runs against Ayotte, then. Colin Van Ostern would be the the presumed Democrat unless mm-hmm. someone else steps forward. Yeah. And so there are, yeah, there, um, I think that's been definitely talked about for a while, that he's kind of in waiting to, you know, step in if Hassan's not there. Um, and on the Republican side, there are a few other people who have openly acknowledged that they are um, weighing whether to run as well. There's Representative Frank Edelblatt. Um, there's Senate Majority Leader Jeb Bradley. I've also read other reports that um, Senate President Chuck Morse, um, Jeannie Forrester, um, you know, are some other names that get thrown around as prominent Republicans who might jump in. So um, I think it'll be, you know, interesting to watch how that shapes up. Well, as, as I was saying a little bit earlier this afternoon, so much about the Sununu announcement uh, depends on context that we don't know yet. Mm-hmm. So in, in other words, if Maggie Hassan decides not to run that uh, for a governor and mm-hmm. decides to run for Senate, let's say, that throws everything open on both sides. 
for Republicans and for Democrats. It becomes a free-for-all. It becomes a very hotly contested race. And there's no particular person, you know, heir apparent, I think, on either side mm -hmm. to, to take that job. Um, on the other hand, if Hassan decides to run for governor again, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's not going to be a serious Democratic challenger, most likely. Uh, a lot of Republicans are probably going to sit it out. So Chris Sununu may be, <laughs> may be one of the only ones. Uh, running in that case, so it'll it'll be interesting to interesting to see. Um, so I thought to kind of wrap things up today, or work on wrapping things up today, we'd uh, we'd have a little we'd have a little game here, or or, or attempt at a game. So oh, actually no, but John, you you have um, you have something about Politifact to talk about. Let's talk about that. Okay, Politifact, go. All righty. So okay. in, in uh, relation to Hillary Clinton that we were talking about before, she um, several of the things that she has said while on the campaign trail in New Hampshire have caught the eye of PolitiFact, and she has um, faced the truth the meter several times lately. Um, and there are also some new claims uh, out against Kelly Ayotte, which we can get to, which are in the works. But... Um, a few weeks ago, when unveiling her uh, substance abuse plan, she said in New Hampshire, uh, well, she said in her op-ed that she released outlining the plan, that 23 million Americans suffer from addiction, but only 1 in 10 get treatment. Uh, this was examined. That statistic is often cited and mostly true. Okay. However, that's the good news for Hillary and her truthfulness, because from there it goes downhill. <laughs> Um, just uh, recently, PolitiFact Wisconsin checked her, uh, she said, um, this is earlier, now this is related to her college affordability plan, uh, she had said that uh, Governor Scott Walker rejected legislation to make college loan payments tax deductible, therefore resulting in raising taxes on students. That is not what he did. Uh, he did freeze tuition while he was there, and this is a distortion of what happened. That was rated false. Um, a little bit earlier, uh, around the, uh, the same time of, of unveiling her college affordability plan, um, she mentioned that in the GOP debate, not one of the Republican candidates mentioned college affordability. And then she took that one step forward to then say, not one of the 17 GOP candidates discussed how they're going to address the rising college generally. None of them are discussing it. That's also false. And um, mixed in there, uh, she, she rhetorically asked, how does Jeb Bush and Donald Trump uh, differ on immigration? Answer, they don't. Uh, that is mostly false. They do have uh, differences in how they view immigration. And then uh, there's been a... Uh, Kelly, well, we had talked about recently that you had fact-checked um, an Americans. attack at yeah, Americans for Prosperity against Hassan. And now uh, the Senate Majority Pack has taken out an ad against Kelly Ayotte. Uh, claiming that she supports tax breaks for companies that shipped jobs overseas, mm -hmm. and also that she helped Big Oil by voting to protect their tax breaks, costing taxpayers forty billion dollars. So we are looking into those claims. Well, we will. We will see. We are. We will see. Um, 
And uh, so, now, moving on. You're you're looking at me very intently now. John. I, I am. I, I, I've, had, I've had a lot of caffeine, today, <laughs> you, so you got to be careful. You, uh, I thought we'd end up today. We would uh, we'd look for like a word or two from each of you. Maybe maybe a sentence, but Some but no more than this. No, no. For for every candidate now, I feel like we we concentrate sometimes on certain candidates. Yeah. So I have here a list in front of me of the seventeen Republicans who are running for president, the five folks on the Democratic side who are running for president. I thought we would go down the list and just, you know, if, if we never say their names again on the podcast, at least we will this one time. So, uh, and, and this is going to move fast. So, so quickly now. So we're going to start with the Democrats, and this is going to be pure alphabetical order. So what no are, favor what, what intended. What is our job? You just say the first thing that comes to your mind. Oh, I don't like this. No, or, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we start with Linka Chafee. Not Donald Trump. Zinn. Horses. He worked, he worked <laughs> he with horses. He worked as a farrier for many years. Okay, Hillary Clinton. Emails. D- dedicated. Oh, me too? We're all doing this? Yeah, well, sure, if you want. Jeesh. Uh, Hillary? Yeah. Lots of stuff. <laughs> okay, Martin O'Malley. Guitar. Um, uh, on the ground. Mr. Smooth. <laughs> okay. Bernie Sanders. Uh, populist. Right? Yeah. Fiery, fiery populism? Yeah, I was going to say curmudgeonly, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I just, you know, that's kind of the descriptor that's been applied a lot. Sure. John? Taking on the machine. Ah. And Jim Webb. Not here. Yeah, absent. Yeah, absent. I second that. <laughs> okay, moving and possibly Joe Biden, but he's not. He's not official. He's not official. Yes, avuncular. Yeah. Um, but he's not officially running yet. So this is going to be harder. Okay, now we move on to the seventeen Republicans again in alphabetical order. I, I think we should just accept anything that's said. We each have to come up with something. Well, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. Casey's got something plucky, then I'm, uh, I'm happy to Okay, Jeb, Jeb Bush. Joyful tortoise. <laughs> That's his self yeah, no, that he's getting to his it, campaign. It, it connotes excitement. Just call him Jeb. That's what, that's what, he, that's what he said uh, on, the, on the opening night of The Late Show with uh, Stephen Colbert, uh, when Steve, uh, Colbert was asking about the exclamation point after Jeb. Uh, ben Carson. Gifted hands. Uh, yep. Um, I, think, I think he... You know, I think he's a sleeper candidate this year. That's right. He, he's um, a lot of people like him. Yeah, a lot of people like him. Chris Christie, Bridgegate, um, a non-factor, really. He's just fallen so far. Yeah, I. Yeah, he's still. You know, he's still plugging along here. And, New Hampshire and, focused too. Yeah, he's he's very New Hampshire focused, and he does have the support of some like prominent people here. I just don't know if that's going to translate. Right. He is Mr. Town Hall as well. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Okay, Ted Cruz. Trump's buddy. Yep. I'm going to sh- tr- trying to shut down the Senate again. Um, not here a lot. I don't think. Uh, Carly Fiorina. Uh, just had a birthday. She. <laughs> That's what I she remember. She did just have a birthday. Um, I think articulate and uh, a... This is not the most articulate way of putting it, but a you know very sharp public speaker. Mm-hmm. Gaining steam. Yep. 
Here uh, last weekend? Here sorry? this weekend? Jim Gilmore. Also not here. He was here earlier, but none, you know, uh, attaching himself to other other Republican Party events. Nothing yeah. on his own. However, he'll be here this weekend. For what? J- just G- Jim Gilmore events? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Lindsey Graham. Joyful. Yeah. Um, you know, very uh, another really New Hampshire-focused like guy. joyful hair to, to Jeb Bush's joyful tortoise. I feel true. like he's going at a you know a much more rapid pace all the time than. I just see Jeff. the picture of him with the gun that we ran. Yes. Uh, in the paper with him pointing the gun up. Three amigos. Yep, that's right. With Kelly Ayad and uh, McCain. There will that there that is a a thing mm-hmm. on on Saturday. Uh, Mike Huckabee. Uh, what's his name? Um, there's this photo in our office that I always see of him and Chuck Norris. Right. Chuck Norris um, from the 2008 election. So that is forever associated in my head. I have a different word. Yes. Chickadee. And I have to give a brief explanation. Uh, at a different newspaper, there was a story about Mike Huckabee. And the person working on the desk that night wasn't especially careful in proofreading the story. And Spellcheck changed Huckabee to Chickadee throughout. And this actually was printed in the newspaper. Wow. Chickadee. That, I'm sorry. That's... For, from the, now to the end of time, I can't think about Mike Huckabee and not think about Chickadee. <laughs> okay. Bobby Jindal. Uh, not here. Persistent, though. Mm-hmm. He, um, I get a lot of updates from his campaign via email, and he also is, you know, he seems to be very vocal and trying to issue statements on, you know, the news of the day to kind of, you know, keep his voice in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Kasich, uh, purple shirt, purple striped shirt. That's what I remember last week. Yinzer. It's a slang for a Pittsburgher, and I cannot get that accent out of my head whenever I listen to him. <laughs> I, I'm from Pittsburgh, and that's where it, right. yeah. Um, George Pataki. Um, still in it. He is. Yeah, no, he's going to start phone banking, I've learned, too. So he's mm-hmm. still very much committed to New Hampshire. Um, Rand Paul. Mr. Constitution. That's right. Um, what happened? What also, happened? Also that's, hasn't been here a, a ton. Right. I think a lot, you can you can tell a lot about various candidates' strategies basically by how much time they spend in in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. how much they're really t- hoping to play to the conservative base voters versus, you know, kind of the more libertarian mm-hmm. or economic policy focused um, voters. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rick Perry in Iowa. I'm not quite dead. Sad. <laughs> Marco Rubio, big chair. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but but you know the thing is, Marco Rubio actually has 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 really kept kept at it. Yeah, no, I mean he's still. Um, I think he's still a popular choice, and that people are still definitely keeping him in the running. Um, and you know, I just saw today that I think people are knocking on doors for him here. So there are. Um, I, I wouldn't write him off yeah. at all. I actually think Rubio has a good shot to be one of the final few candidates in the Republican race. Uh, Rick Santorum. Well, that pretty much says that. Uh, and the, Donald Trump. Um, what, what isn't there to say about Donald Trump? Um, 
just Loud. broke 30%, I guess, in Republican yeah. polling today, I think. Growing. Yep. And Scott Walker. Hypothetical. <laughs> uh, on the on the down downslope. Yeah. Pretty much. And um, and that's it. Well, that was a long. And that was a kind of. Awkward that was a long segment. speed round. Right <laughs> that was there. that was a lot of people. Um, so there it is. There you have it. This was the week that was at the mm-hmm. Political <laughs> Monitor podcast. Uh, John, thank you for being here. Thanks, thanks, Clay. And and I did wanted to say. I mean, it, I've been impressed by our staff here. Um, just the amount of political stories that have been in the paper has been um, just really impressive. Casey, Allie, Megan, everyone's been doing just a great it's very job. Pretty much an all hands on deck. It's all hands on deck. I mean, every day I'm I'm seeing four and five stories in the paper that are politically driven. They're insightful. That are really well done. So you know, I'm I'm happy and it's great. And I also wanted to give a little shout out to our friends at uh, New Hampshire Public Radio who showed us some empathy for trying to do this little uh, podcast slash radio gig. That's right uh, on a weekly basis. And um and we'll only be seeing more of these political stories too coming up here too these next few months. I thought yeah, we're gonna Labor just get days. we're gonna put it on the shelf. Yeah, you know, yeah. we're done. Nothing really happens after Labor Day, <laughs> as I understand it. So. And Casey, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast through iTunes and Stitcher, and stay up to date on all of the latest at the Political Monitor at politics.conqueredmonitor.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.